0: welcome you uh tonight we have several members who are out who are sick and where our hearts are lifted up and we're praying for you all and and uh we miss you and love you um but it seems like uh you know every so often the the lord just has us sit sit it out for a little bit and rest and and recover and and so we pray the lord blesses you and, and heals you and get you back home to us Turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2. So as we continue our series in Hebrews, this is our ninth message or our ninth look at this. And if we were the title of our message tonight, it'd be our perfect Savior and our help. Our perfect Savior and our help. Now, our text tonight is going to be verses 9 through 18. I pray the Lord we get through all of that. I I don't know if we will or not, but uh, one of the things, as I have always been trying to reiterate with Hebrews, is the continuance of the thought and the study of Hebrews. Uh, Last week, we saw the world to come in verse 5. We looked At verse 5 through 9. And a couple of the things which we see, it's all connected in this chapter, chapter 2. So I know this is our second or third message in chapter 2, but we have to come back to that same connection that we have been looking at. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. No, I'm sorry, verse 3. He says how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation. So this great salvation is introduced, it's brought into our reading. There's also another thing that we immediately see in verse 3 is who is the subject. He says how shall we escape. So the subject is man. The subject is us. So The subject does not change from man until verse 9 when he starts talking about Jesus. Something very important that we need to keep that in mind. Because chapter 2 is the classic case of the condition of man and the solution of God. So it's those two things. That's the classic case we see all throughout the the scriptures and the word of God. And that's the reality of our lives and life itself is what is the condition of man and what has been the solution of God. So we saw that this great salvation, which we have in verse three is connected. Uh, In verse 14, we saw that We would be heirs of salvation. We would inherit salvation. This great salvation is not just a spiritual salvation, but it's a physical salvation. Jesus has not only reconciled us to God, but he is going to restore all things physically and he has restored us spiritually to the Lord to where when, we, when we're under sin, we've lost the image of God, we've lost all the glory, but when we're saved, we're reconciled, we're brought back, we have an inward glory and we have an inward image, but we still have these bodies of death. So the bodies that we have now will will one day also be restored. We'll have a glorified body. And so that's what he's really giving to, uh, he had talked about verse uh, 11 or verse verse 10 and 11 is saying, And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, I'm in chapter 1, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy ears shall fail not. So he's talking about the world to come here. And then, so in chapter 2, when he starts talking about this great salvation in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect? Or we are careless about the word which we have heard, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. Not only did the Lord Jesus himself speak it, but it was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. The apostles heard him, Jesus' disciples, and when the Comforter came, it led them into writing the New Testament. And so we have Jesus' word, that which was spoken in writing. So, and we know that Jesus is God's final revelation. So if you, we have the word of God, which we do, we need no other revelation. We need no further revelation because God is, or Jesus is God's final word. And so in verse 5, he says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. So we looked at that That world which is to come, that physical world which he's going to change in chapter 1. This earth he's going to fold up as a garment, as a vesture, because it's old and it's lost its purpose. He's going to change it and make all things new. And the angels are not subject to that, which means the old covenant. If you remember, when he speaks of angels, he is speaking by the words of the angels, which was delivered. What did they do? They delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so whenever there's an association of the angels and the the Jews, they always associate that with the Old Covenant. So uh, the things of the Old Covenant are not going to be the ones that rule the earth when it comes, the the angels. But in verse 6, now remember, the subject is still we in verse 3. So verses 6 through 8 a lot of people out there think this is talking about Jesus and there's a lot of good men that do but i'm under conviction that he's talking he's still talking about man this was man's original creation in verse 6, but one in a certain place testified saying, this is Psalm 8, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him? So they want to equate that to be Jesus, the son of man. But he's—he's he's not. we've not moved our subject into Jesus yet. We are still talking about man and his need for this great salvation, this need for this physical deliverance. But Verse 7, thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But the writer of Hebrews has to clarify, but now we see not yet all things put under him. And pretty soon we're going to find out what that is. It's death. Since sin entered, we do not have the dominion over death. Death has the dominion over us. Death has the dominion. I mean, it's, it's a cursed world. It's a corrupt world. Uh, and the original purpose of God, you can look in Genesis chapter 126 and Psalm 8, when God had created man, what did he do? He gave him dominion over the things that he created. He gave him rulership over the world. So, knowing this is what he did, Jesus came in verse 9, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So, the logic that continues here is the great salvation. Now, how has Jesus accomplished salvation. How is Jesus going to restore the image of man and the rulership of the earth to man, the original creation? Last week, we ended with this thought that Jesus, through Jesus, we are becoming the man of Psalm 8. When David wrote Psalm 8, he was, re, he was writing about the creation account before the fall. He was writing about what man was designed to do. If you remember, man was designed to be thankful that he was designed to give God glory and that he was designed to have rulership over the earth. And so we see that man has lost that through sin. And that is what verses 6 through 8 is talking about. But now we see not yet all things put under him. So I don't believe that this is talking about Jesus because in verse 9, he restates Psalm 8 again. He reapplies Psalm 8, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, to Jesus. Why would he do it again if he was talking about Jesus the first time? And that son of man, which is referred to in verse 6, I believe that is the prosperity. Of man. That is man after Adam. So tonight in verses 9 through 18, we're going to look at the subject, our Jesus. Now think about this before we leave tonight. The the big point is Jesus was born to die, Jesus was born to suffer and to die. So in verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That made a little lower in the Greek is eleto, And what it does not mean that Jesus was created or that he came into existence in his incarnation. Elato, that's all one Greek word, made a little lower, means that he took on demotion of rank. He took on demotion of authority. He became a lower rank and of dignity. Why did he do that? For, there's that word, for the suffering of death. Now think about that. There has been no other death in history, nor will there ever be another death that is more purposeful than Jesus' death. You Think about that. His death meant more in purpose than anybody else's death in history. And I think about the fact that Jesus was incarnated and he was born, and the reason he came at all to be born of a virgin, to take on human flesh, was to suffer and die. Now, to the Jews, this was a little hard, to believe. It was, a little, it was a big pill to swallow because the their Messiah, they believed of the Old Testament, would be this great conquering Davidic king, the hero. He would restore everything. I mean, not only was it hard for them to understand how did the Messiah, how did the Son of God himself, God himself, not only become lower than the angels, his own creation But how could he suffer and die? And not just suffer and die, but die the worst death that existed in that day. Crucifixion was meant for the criminals. That was meant for the lowest of the low of society, the scum of society. How could their conquering great Messiah come and be crucified? And so, Paul and Jesus had to reiterate over and over that Jesus must needs, he must have came, suffered, and died. In Acts chapter 17, uh, just one place that Paul goes over it over and over is that in Thessalonica, he reasoned with them for three days. Three days opening and alleging in Acts chapter 17, verse 3, that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. Over and over, that from the scriptures, they were alleging and showing the Jews that the Messiah had to have suffered. Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 24, said, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus came because of his suffering and death, and only his death could accomplish man's salvation. We we lost. We lost our glory. We lost our purpose of design when sin entered. But it says here that he was made a little lower because or for the suffering of death, but he was crowned with glory and honor now that crown of glory and honor is talking about Jesus' exaltation. If you remember in Philippians chapter 2, how that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. Wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. Jesus, he was the perfect human. He, was the per- he fulfilled the purpose of the design of humans. Kind. That's he's the second Adam. So he not only fulfilled the purpose which God has designed of mankind, but he came and he suffered and was obedient as our substitute. And that's verse 9, another way. Jesus has perfectly accomplished our salvation. At the end of verse 9, it says that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now, to taste death is a Jewish phrase. It's a Jewish idiom. It's found in rabbinical writings, and it signifies the truth and the reality of Jesus' death. Now, this death that he tastes, it includes all kinds of deaths and the suffering that we have in our existence. The suffering that comes with the corruption of what we have. There's a variety of ways. There's a variety of suffering that Jesus suffered. Death is the process. Sin causes death. And sin we are weighed down by. We're weighed down by the consequence of sin. We're weighed down by the corruption. We're weighed down by illnesses and grief and sadness and sorrow. And the things which ultimately lead to death. It's a death process. Now, when he tasted death, he tasted it in several ways. First, the death of afflictions, which he had, and two, he suffered the equivalent of eternal death. That is the second death, which we see in Revelation, that we will suffer. It's the second death, eternal death. He suffered that death now, when we see, when it's talking about for every man, we need to realize Christ died as a surety. Now, a surety is, think of a cosigner. A surety is someone who takes the responsibility, or they take on the responsibility of another person's performance. Or action. Um, it could be a courtroom or it could be a payment. Jesus is our surety. That means that his death, his burial, his resurrection when he died for our sins, he paid for the debt that you owe. He became the the one that became responsible for your sins. Now how do we know that Jesus the payment was successful because he rose again. That is why you'll hear that raising in his resurrection, we're justified. Because if Jesus never rose up from the grave, we don't know if his death was satisfactory of a payment. We don't know if he could have been our surety. He's the one that took on the full responsibility of our sins. But Christ died for not every individual of mankind, but Christ died for his sheep. Now, because Christ died in such a variety of ways, look at verse 9 again. uh, There are a lot of people who think the Greek grammar. It should be read at the end of verse 9 that he by the grace of God should taste every death. Remember, there's a variety of death. There, There's a variety of ways that sin is killing us, that it's corrupt, this world is corrupt, that he grieved in the way that he grieved. But when he says in verse 9, for every man, taking in what we know in context, which we're about ready to hit, We know that Jesus died for his sheep. He died for his elect. Because at the end of the age, we know that there will be some that come to him and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart. Jesus died what we call a particular atonement. He made it a particular atonement. He tasted death for his sheep. And that is proven from the scriptures. That's not just something I've been told as a kid and I just come to learn. I mean, I, ha- I was told that as a kid, but um, it's also in the scriptures. Um, yeah, we have time. This is one of my favorite places to go. Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. So we need to understand in verse 9 what he's talking about. Not only did he taste death, but who is it for? It says for every man. But what does that mean? What does the Scriptures tell us? What, What do we keep in context? John chapter 10, and this you may have known I was going to go here because this is one of my favorite places to go when we talk about particular atonement. That means that Christ did not die for the sins of every person, single person. Otherwise, everybody would be saved. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make salvation possible. He died on the cross to secure salvation for his sheep. He accomplished salvation. He didn't just leave it open-ended. He accomplished it. Now, all right, John chapter 10, verse 24 Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Look at verse 26 carefully with me. What was the question that they had to him? The question is, is, why didn't they believe Jesus? Now, let me ask you that question. Why did they not believe Jesus? Jesus answered it in verse 26. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. Now, what does that sentence not say? That sentence does not say, but ye are not my sheep because you do not believe. It doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say the reason you're not my sheep is because you don't believe. He doesn't say that. He says the reason you don't believe is because you're not one of my sheep that he died for. That will know his voice. That's what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. His sheep will hear his voice, for they will know him. He knows them, and we will hear him because he calls. And if you are his sheep, you're coming, and a stranger will you not respond to. But you will only respond to your master. Uh, Go on YouTube sometime and watch how fascinating it is to watch the shepherd call sheep. And uh, I watched a a YouTube video, and they did an experiment. They had four people, and there was this huge uh, herd of sheep out there. They had four people. Three were strangers. One was the master. One was the shepherd. The first stranger did his yip, did his call. The sheep were all eating from the grass. They never even looked up. And then the second person yipped and called and yipped and yipped and called, and they never even looked up. And the third one, same thing. And finally, the shepherd got up, and he just called out to them. Every one of the sheep raised up their heads and started, you know, ba ba And then there were hundreds of sheep running to the shepherd. The stranger they did not hear. They knew their master's voice. And that is what Jesus is saying. Those who believe will know my voice, because they'll hear him. So that is the back in Hebrews chapter 2, we know that Jesus died for his sheep. He died for his elect. He knew whom he was dying for, and he has accomplished salvation for them. Through the death, the burial, the resurrection, he has become your substitute, if you believe in him and have heard his voice and you have come to him in repentance and faith, then you have heard his voice and that Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice and they shall never perish. They will not perish. Neither will anybody be able to pluck us out of the Father's hand. He has secured our salvation. And verse 9 It says that he had to come to do that. He had to take on the nature of the flesh. He had to be in lower rank than the angels in order to suffer the death that I was supposed to suffer. He is my substitute. And that's the great salvation. That's part of the great salvation we're talking about. Now, verse 10 is also very interesting For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So here's another weighty verse in verse 10. And I I don't know about you, but I love studying the word of God. And uh, verse 10 is another one that we're going to spend a little bit of time on. It says, for it became him. Now, what does that mean? For it became him. For it became him means that Jesus, that the Father, was consistent with his character. Now, what does it go on to say? For whom are all things? And by whom are all things? What does that say about his character? That means he's the creator. He's the author. He's the power. He's the one that has power over everything, and by him all things consist. They have their being. In chapter 1, we saw it was by the word of his power. And we know that it's putting anthropomorphic language. It's a sign. That's what that means is we know God is spirit, right? So before Christ became man, he existed in spirit. So God is spirit but often what we'll do is we will ascribe human features to God to help us understand God. That's anthropomorphic language. Anthropos means man. And so the word of his power, I believe God just thought and came into being. And so that's who he is. That is consistent with his character. What else is consistent with his character is the wisdom of God that the cross of Christ, the preaching of the cross of Christ, that Jesus came and suffered, this is also consistent with his wisdom, that God may be just being the justifier. Now, how can God forgive me of my sins and be just at the same time? Well, in the wisdom of God, that Christ came and became my substitute. He died a vicarious death. And, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, what else has for it became him. What else is consistent with his character, which we've seen so far? Not only the wisdom of God, but the holiness of God. We see God's wrath poured out. We see God's hatred of sin that he would punish and pour out his wrath upon his beloved. The third thing we see consistent with God's character is his love. For God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were sinners, yet sinners, Christ died, for us, I watched an interview uh, one time, and there was um, kind of a question answer. And a young lady asked this question. She said, "How can God have unconditional love and at the same time want to put want to send me to hell? How can God love me and also want to hurt me at the same time?" Now, that's a very reasonable question. Now, the person who answered that question didn't have any biblical knowledge at all. And it was awful the way that they answered it. But here's a couple of answers. First of all, God sends nobody to hell unjustly. God sends no one to hell unjustly. She should have reworded her question How can I continue to hate God? Disobey God and sin against God and not pay for it. That was her question. Not how can God love me and send me to hell? No, she wants the love, but she doesn't want the guilt. She doesn't want that to be. So that should have been her question. That is a way a lot of people view God. How can I live the way I want to live? Continue to hate Him, continue to sin against Him and not pay for it. Secondly, God's love is unconditional. Love is one of the attributes of God. And God's expression of love is the greatest expression of love anybody will ever have. In your life, in any life, in the past, in the future, God's expression of love is there for you to receive today, right now, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. That his love, God commendeth his love to us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So the love that you receive, it it has to be through repentance and through faith and trust of Jesus Christ that he paid for your sins. That is love. That's how you receive the love of God. It's through the substitute, through Jesus Christ who paid for my sin, paid for my penalty. Otherwise, if I reject that, that is I'm outside of the scope of God's love. Now I am directly in the line of God's justice. That's my future. That's the future for every man. And that is the future that it's talking about death, not all things have been put under him. Since sin came, death came. And so we're all on a slow march, or in, uh, it could be not slow, it could be r- rather quickly towards death. But we see that for it became him to become our substitute, not only because it's the wisdom of God, the holiness of God, the love of God, the grace of We also see the grace of God, but it's consistent with his authorship. Because that's what he goes on to say. For it became him for whom are all things, and by him are all things, in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What does this mean? This means that. It is consistent, what Jesus did is consistent with the fact that he had to author and create and put into motion and accomplish and seal it himself. And that's exactly what he did with creation. That's what he did in all things, including our salvation. Our great salvation. It had to be after his own character. It was consistent with his character to be the author and the finisher of our great salvation which he's been talking about this whole time of this subject. And it's beautiful and once you and once you get into the grammar in verse 10 because in when it says in bringing many sons into glory that bringing is a verb in the active voice. What that means is that it became him who's our subject, him, it became God who who did the bringing. God did the bringing. God did the action of the verb upon the object. Who's the object of the sentence? The many sons. God did and performed the action upon you. You weren't looking for it. You weren't reaching for it. You weren't going to him. He came down and he did the action upon you. That word bringing is the act of voice of the verb. And guess what else the active voice of the verb is too in verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth, Here's another action verb that he has done upon us and they who are sanctified are all of one. We need to see that the gospel is not about man. The gospel is about God. The gospel is about Jesus and his work and his what he has accomplished in the gospel. Now, how did he do that? How did Jesus accomplish this? He became the captain. I know last week we talked about the captain. In that Greek, it means the pioneer. A pioneer is one who blazes the trail, who makes the way for others to follow. So in verse 10, he blazed the trail by doing exactly what we talked about earlier. He became the perfect man, and he was the Lamb of God. So not only did he fulfill the design of God as man, he's the second Adam, but he also fulfilled the sacrifice, being the Lamb of God, which takes away my sins. He suffered in our place. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, and he died a death. He paid for sins, my sins, that I could not pay for unless I was suffering. That is, he has become perfect in sufferings. Now, we know that Jesus has died, but he rose again. That's also the other way that he has pioneered. He has blazed the trail for us. Not only that we die in this life, but that we raise again. And that's what Jesus did. He did it first. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And then so he has has led us. He had made and provided a way for us to live. The only way for us to live eternally is to be raised again from the dead and to live with him. That's living eternally. Otherwise, we die eternally. So verse 11, well, maybe we will, I'm not sure if we will get through all of this, but verse 11, how else has God accomplished salvation for us? He's our sanctifier. What that means is he is the one who makes us holy. Now, that may be hard to think about, It's hard to think of ourselves as holy. I know it's hard for me to think of myself as holy. It's probably hard for you to think of yourself as holy. Why? Because there's sin all around us. There's sin that we commit against God. We ask him to forgive us of our sins, but we don't feel holy doing that. We need to think of the, the bigger picture here with our great salvation. I've said it many times. I taught it in Romans, and the truth is there that there's two aspects of sanctification. Sanctification is setting apart, right? He has set us apart uh, unto himself for a purpose. That means holy. We are gods. God has purchased us he has saved us, he's redeemed us, he's brought us, he's reconciled us. We are his property, we are the ownership of God and salvation. He already paid the ransom price. We are one with him, and that what that means is he has separated us unto himself for a purpose. That means holy. That's what Moses had to do the Mount Sinai. God said sanctify the mountain. Make the mountain holy. That didn't mean an intrinsic work of the mountain. That meant a separation unto God's purpose for His purpose and only His purpose. Uh, That's what it meant. Now, before God, we need to think about this. When He says, For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, how has God made us holy? God has made us holy in the eyes of God. Jesus' death. Burial and resurrection, his righteousness has made us accepted. How is? What's the only way that you can stand before God? Righteous. You cannot have one sin on your record. God had to expel Adam and Eve after one sin. He couldn't be in their presence. We couldn't have fellowship with God. But Jesus has solved that. He has accomplished our reconciliation in that, that God no longer sees my guilt and my sin and my corruption, but he sees Christ's perfect righteousness. That's how we've been separated, brought to God and holy before him because it's not my inner holiness. God sees it's Jesus Christ's righteousness that he sees. That's called imputed righteousness. That's called justification. He has done that. Oh, this great salvation. He has done that. He has made us accepted. He has brought us in verse eleven. For both he that sanctifieth that Jesus is the one that sanctifieth. He's doing the action of the verb, and they who are sanctified were the passive. We're the ones who are being acted upon, are all of one. And look at this. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Why? It's not because we have the same nature as Jesus. Jesus is divine. We are human. We're flesh and blood. It's not because we have the same wisdom as Jesus. It's not because we have this the the same um, um discernment as him. It's because we have the same righteousness. How do we have the same righteousness as Jesus? Because it's his righteousness. It's not mine. It's his. Therefore, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Not only is Jesus not ashamed, I mean, it's gone beyond the disciple. It's gone beyond that. It's, now we're brothers. We're a member of the family of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're in the royal kingdom. Verse 12 says, "...saying I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee." And that's Psalm 22. And what that's talking about is not only will Jesus praise God, as we see Jesus do, we see Jesus was obedient. We saw that Jesus had faith. Jesus prayed when he was on earth. We saw that he had faith, but also unto his brethren who sing in the midst of the church, I will I sing praise unto thee in verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. Wasn't that wonderful? We just read that in John chapter 10, that we are given to him by the Father. All that the Father had given to me. I shall lose none. All that the Father given to me, all that the children that God has given to Jesus will follow Jesus in his praise to God and our faith. Jesus had faith in God. Jesus prayed to God. Jesus read the word of God. We all follow our captain. And because It is His righteousness which we have. We are united. We're all one. We're one with Jesus Christ. And even so much so, verse fourteen is even more remarkable. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Oh, we we have we don't have time to keep going. I I, I wish we did. Um, but that's the, the way that it goes and the Lord will have us stop here and we'll pick this up again maybe next Wednesday uh, or however the Lord leads. Maybe we'll pick it up Sunday. But it continues to talk about the accomplishment of Jesus' salvation. You know, God also is not ashamed to be called our God. Isn't that something? Why? Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of his righteousness. Just the beauty, the beauty of imputed righteousness, the fact that he has rescued us. I mean, one day we are going to shed these clothes. One day we're going to shed this body, this body of death. Paul said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But I thank God. I thank Jesus Christ who died for me. You know, that is the great salvation. It is a beautiful opus. It's a beautiful song that we see starting, it's starting to kind of formulate in chapter one and starting to get a little more momentum in in chapter two. And he's talking about the new world. He's talking about this great salvation. And really at the end of the day, we see, what Jesus has done in accomplishing our salvation, both spiritual, we're going to live forever, and eternal. He has defeated death. We're going to talk about that in the verses to come. He has defeated death, and he has defeated the fact that we don't have to be afraid of death. Death is Satan's weapon, and he uses death. He uses the fear of death all the time for discouragement. He uses it, but Christ has defeated that. We no longer have the fear death because look at this great salvation that we're physically going to have one day. We already have it now if you believe upon him. For he is our substitute. He's our surety. He's our sanctifier. And by his grace, he has saved us. And I hope and I pray the Lord has blessed you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for your mighty grace and your mighty hand. Lord, Though you have brought us out of salvation. You are our captain. You are the one who's gone before us. Father, you have satisfied the requirement of the law. You fulfilled the law. And then you died for my sins and for the penalty of my sins. You took my wrath. You took my punishment. Father, I love you and because you first loved me, you are the one that initiated it. I could not come to you, you came to me. Father, I do pray for those who are here tonight. Lord, that you've talked to their hearts in your special way and that your will be done. I pray for those who are sick and who want to be here and who cannot be here. Father, just be with them in a special way. Father, we pray, Lord, as we leave this place, we give you all the praise and glory honor in our lives, that we may be honoring to you. Father, we ask you to strengthen our faith and our peace. In Jesus' name, amen.